In order to get anything to happen, you have to take a certain amount of risk and you have to sort of go into an area where you're not sure you're going to be able to pull it off. George is always known as an innovator. Uh, here we go again. He's doing something new. He's doing something different. It's certainly is a, it's a risk. It's a risky idea. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Friends of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. I'm your host, Brad. And I'm your host, Sarah. And this is... Attack of the Clones, Clones, April. April. We almost synced it up there. Hey, folks, we're here. We are so excited to be here. It is the 20th anniversary of Attack of the Clones. Get ready, because... All those years ago, May 16th, 2002, it was a special time, just a different time in the world. Attack of the Clones, Star Wars Episode 2, comes out in theaters. What a time to be alive. And here we are now, 20 years later. We are not youngins anymore, folks. The prequel kids are here to stay. Yeah, but let's be very clear. Let's be very clear. Brad's saying, what a time to be alive. And we were like in elementary school. (laughs) (laughs) So like we were alive. We were thriving, learning cursive. Doing basic multiplication. I don't know about you. Actually, I wasn't even... No, I wasn't even in elementary school when this movie came out. So, you know, I was not allowed to see this movie in the theaters. I was a, a wee child. A small baby. Not not like a baby. I was a toddler. <laughs> Let me tell you, I have like one flashbulb memory of seeing this movie in theater. Actually, two. The first is just Obi-Wan Kenobi jumping out the window. Uh, to chase after Zam Wessel's droid, because of course, yeah. And the second being Flippy Flippy Yoda and just laughing the entire time as a kid, because I was like, this is amazing. It's like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. So let's let's talk about it. I mean, we are the prequel kids. The prequel kids are here to stay. We are not youngins anymore, except that in some circles, we definitely are. We're just 20 years older than we were back then. So my question for you, Brad, as prequel kids that we are, what does Attack of the Clones mean to you you talked about those flashbulb memories was this your favorite of the prequels i need to know more about your your love for attack of the clones and i'm just assuming that you love attack of the clones because we're here at attack of the clones april well for me attack of the clones is like my real first conscious memory of a star wars movie in the theater mm. i do remember the opening crawl from phantom menace but that that was it for for attack of the clones it's like a little bore of the movie that i remember and then Revenge of the Sith is like a little more of the movie that I remember. So it kind of kept gradually, you know, be, it, it becomes easier to remember the older you get. Right. So um, for me, this is a really important groundbreaking movie. And I think the scope of Attack of the Clones, like all the big battles, the Jedi. I remember like watching the trailer for this movie over and over and over again on like StarWars.com. The old version of StarWars.com where it was like, like you could be like a hyperspace fan. It was crazy. It was a good time. <laughs> and waiting for that stupid video to buffer so I could watch it and be like, is that Boba Fett flying with the jetpack? Darth Vader's breathing over the sound of the trailer? What is happening? What is happening? It was just exciting. It was just a good time. It was just the speculation was abound. And I was just like, I need to know what this movie is about. Is Darth Vader going to happen? Is, you know, what, what, where is Anakin? What's he doing? You know, so there's just, it was just an exciting time. 
Yeah. And the movie, like, I, you know, I think it's one of those movies where people will be like, oh, it's the worst of the prequels, but it's really not. And that's like kind of what we're here to talk about today, because this movie in many ways is important to the saga, but it's also important to digital filmmaking as we know it today. And mm-hmm. George Lucas is a visionary that paved the future of Hollywood. Yeah, for Going sure. Going back to not just not just the two, early 2000s, but the 70s. I mean, Star Wars is much more revolutionary than I think people realize it is. And that's what we're here to discuss today. But what was your experience like with Attack of the Clones before we get into that? So, as I said before, I was a toddler when this movie came out, so I was not quite seeing it in the theaters. I'm, I'm so sorry for the listeners that that makes feel old. And I'm... I'm so sorry. Um, So Attack the Clones was my road trip movie. Like every time that my family would go on a road trip and we did often because we loved to camp um, across the country, we would, I would, I would always make sure to bring Attack of the Clones because like there is no better road trip movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's just not, there's not. And I also love the arena sequence, the Geonosis arena sequence and the, um, droid factory sequence and the music and the sound of those scenes is so in my mind and so perfect for me so i get i'm like i get why people aren't the biggest fans of attack of the clones but as you said brad incredible revolutionary for star wars for filmmaking and there are so many exciting things to pull out of attack of the clones that i'm like how can you how can you talk badly about this movie though like it's great the pair the pair okay brilliant 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 bridgerton anakin skywalker is the og anthony bridgerton (laughs) also okay the costumes i mean we'll talk about this more as we go through attack of the clones april we have so much planned but it, it's great it's great it's great so you've probably already seen us post on twitter that we are doing attack of the clones april and that's how we open the show what it is exactly is every week we're gonna have new episodes about attack of the clones so get ready because we got special guests coming on the show we're covering special topics around the film it's gonna be very exciting and we know may is gonna be a very packed month with celebration and brotherhood which brotherhood's an offshoot of attack of the clones uh, you know, post episode two, which is very exciting. So, uh, you know, it's not going away. And then we're going to be covering Kenobi. So I think we're kind of hitting our prequel turning point on the podcast here for a couple months where it's yeah. like all prequel content from here on out for the most part until we get the High Republic back in our lives, which is still like pre prequel. Yeah. I mean, no complaints from us here. We are so excited. And I hope that you will come on this journey with us as we celebrate Attack of the Clones uh, anniversary like a month early. We're just like a little early. We want you to get in the hype with us and then we can continue to celebrate all through May and Star Wars Celebration uh, and beyond as we get Kenobi. We are like, my gosh, so excited for all of this stuff. But yeah, the reason why it's in April is because there is literally so much planned. And we were like, this would be the perfect time. And also attack April, attack of the clones, April. Okay. It's attack of the April. It's good. It's fun. April attacks. We love alliteration here. April's for the clones. So yeah, definitely. That's what we're here to talk about. Episode one was the first movie to be projected digitally. And it took an enormous amount of effort on George's part to get to the theaters to actually move from analog to digital projection. Attack of the Clones pushed the technology even further, becoming the first movie to be shot entirely in the digital format. 
And we worked for six years with Sony and Texas Instruments to set and create a new standard that fit George's vision. He drove the technology and he wasn't going to let us rest until we achieved it for him. Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones was the first movie to be filmed completely on digital. So like prior to this, films were shot on 35 millimeter print. And George Lucas, always a forward looking person, was like, I'm going to change that. So we want to dive into why he wanted to change the landscape of filmmaking and like what were some of the benefits of switching to digital and like how did that allow Attack of the Clones to be what it is uh, and all of the cool things that it brought to the Star Wars table and, and, and the scope and the imagination of Star Wars. And then how did this film bring us to where we are today with things like the volume and how we continue to evolve filmmaking and ILM continues to be at the forefront of that. And, and I think it really does go back not only just to the original trilogy, but I think attack of the clones was the, like the big pivot point for this company and for the industry, because mm -hmm. it, it, it really did revolutionize things for filmmaking. So I want to start with this quote from, from George Lucas. Did you want to read it off to us? This is from uh, the archives episodes one through three by Paul Duncan. This is a George Lucas quote. Which, oh my gosh, that is such a book. If you do not have it, consider oh God. getting it or borrowing it's it from a friend. It's amazing. Amazing. Okay. To quote George Lucas, I'm a strong proponent, for better or worse, of making a film that works. By that, I mean the audience can follow the story, be entertained by the story, be moved by the story, or educated by the story. I'm not that interested, ultimately, in having it technically perfect. I've discovered that has nothing to do with telling a story. So when people analyze digital as opposed to the photochemical process, they're talking about things that nobody, except for a highly trained cameraman, lab technician, or special effects person could ever see. They're focusing on things that aren't issues that the public would ever know or care about. To not use a process simply because there's some very esoteric technical issue is not something that I can relate to very well. There's a lot of controversy about the fact that we're shooting episode two digitally. People ask me why I'm doing this. The real question is, why not? It's vastly superior in every way. It's cheaper. You'd be nuts not to shoot this way. As far as I'm concerned, we should have been shooting digital cinema 20 years ago. So that's a great quote to start off with, because we're now going to talk about the differences between uh, digital and film and go into that and talk about why they're different. But the point is, we're going to attempt to explain or attempt to elevate, illuminate George Lucas's view that it is superior in every way. So, yeah. And George Lucas's view is always an interesting one, right? Because when we did our Oscars episode last year, we talked a lot about how George was very disillusioned with Hollywood and how... Star Wars sort of evolved into this thing where he formed his own company and he didn't want to deal with the bureaucracy of Hollywood and and trying to get financing from people necessarily. He really wanted to be very self-sufficient and do things for himself and get what he wants. I think George Lucas is somebody uh, in one of the documentaries that we watched from the uh, DVD special features. George just says that he's somebody that very rarely doesn't get what he wants. And in the event that he doesn't get something that he wants, it's he knows that the people around him know it's just something he'll try next. Yeah. And so yeah. it really goes to show that, you know, even though much of the industry is saying, oh, like, you know, film is superior, it's better in every single way. George is like, I'm going to try that this digital thing and I don't really care what anybody else says because that's what I want to do and that's how I want to make this film. And like nobody can really stop him. Right. So I think it's really cool that he is so, so self-sufficient. And we have a company like Lucasfilm where he was able to have that creative freedom, you know? 
yeah, I think it's pretty amazing that we got to this point because we wouldn't have gotten to where we are today if George Lucas didn't push for it. You know, one person is not unilaterally responsible for all things. However, George Lucas was incredibly persistent about digital filmmaking. And ultimately, I think his tenacity, his unwillingness to say no ultimately to this is what pushed this movie to be filmed on all digital and what pushed us into this sort of digital revolution that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting looking back 20 years later to think about the process that came to this, came to this film and looking past that to where we are today. It's amazing to Mm -hmm. think about the progress we've made in the past 20 years. And to also think about the fact that George was to think about the fact that George was thinking about using this technology even earlier, not just five years earlier, not just 10 years earlier, but 20 years earlier. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, that's so forward thinking. And that, that really speaks to his mind and his creative eye. And we know, we, we know as fans, as star Wars fans who love this franchise, we know that yes, uh, he kind of ushered in this digital age. He also really fought for visual effects. Uh, we know that this changed the landscape of Star Wars. But when you dive into it, like we have in this, this research, I mean, this is not coming from our brains. This is coming from lots of other people's brains that we're just kind of putting into a podcast episode today. But when you dive into all of this information, it's really, really amazing to think about all of the work that all of the individual members of the team that was making the cameras and the team that is making the film and editing it and doing sound, doing VFX, and how they all come together to create this movie. Mm-hmm. Really just sitting down and thinking about it, it has been an awesome discovery in the research of this episode. So, wow. Yeah, and you said, you made a great point that, you know, it doesn't, it's not just one person who who changes the landscape, but I think it definitely can take one person to change the thinking ar- around the landscape, right? And somebody as renowned as george with such a reputation it's like oh that george lucas guy like he's been around for a while he's really getting into this this stuff this digital stuff right and he knows spielberg and spielberg's a renowned director and like maybe spielberg starts to look at that too and you know it's a little bit of a domino effect so yeah ultimately we probably would have ended up at some sort of digital landscape in hollywood but i think for george to do it as early as he did and really push for it despite people saying things about the prequels like oh it's so cgi heavy like how many people do you see nowadays like shit talk the prequel trilogy because they're like, oh, it's all blue screen and gray screen. And I'm like, yes, but like, uh, like George Lucas tried something new. Like he wanted to push the boundaries a little bit. Right. And he wanted to push the limits of his people because he wanted to see what they're capable of. And it inspired everybody else to kind of start doing the same thing. Right. I mean, like all the movies that we get now, like Avatar and and um all the avengers movies and stuff and like all these films that are just so heavy on like action sequences big blockbuster films that are earning millions of dollars billions in some cases and putting people in the movie theaters i mean it starts it starts here in some ways yeah and i want to say we're getting the star wars people trilogy at the same time we're getting lord of the rings oh so my like gosh there yeah. are things happening you know in the movie industry right here and it's really amazing to think and, and there's a george quote that i think we'll hit on later in this episode that we are at the very beginning stages still of 
digital and and whether we should go as far as we can go, you know, and create all these digital actors and things. Questions that are still not definitively answered. However, (laughs) funny how George was asking those questions 20 years ago and we're still trying to figure it out. (laughs) Well, but like those questions may not be answered yet, but like the fact that we're still just starting to ask them and just starting to ponder them and like really think about ethics and and digital landscapes and the way we can push the boundaries. It's amazing. Yeah. So Sarah, what is the difference though between film and, and, and digital? I think that's an important place to start to really understand, especially when it comes to like frame rate and resolution and like why this was such a challenging moment for George Lucas and company and like why when they're going into Attack of the Clones, they're like, we're doing this, we're committed to this, like why it's a big deal and why it's going to be difficult. I don't know a lot about cameras. I don't. And that's okay. Me neither. But Me other neither. people know a lot about cameras and I'm going to try and <laughs> talk about their thoughts. So basically, when you film on film, you're actually filming on a physical reel that has a limited length, which is not super duper long. Then you have to process that. And then that film, the physical property wears down over time, which is why some films are lost to us forever. You know, they were on a film reel, the master, water spilled on it. Oh, crap. You know, like it's gone. Digital, you're filming on one of our discs or uh, VHS tapes. You know, you're, you're putting it onto a physical property that is much smaller, much more compact, compressed differently, not necessarily, you know, frame by frame in a physical format. And you, you can do that for a longer period of time and it's cheaper. So film Negatives are actually an 8K resolution. That is insane. That is insane to me to think about. (laughs) As somebody who knows nothing about cameras, and we're talking about 4K, you know, 4K digital video right now for like YouTube and things. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I can see people's pores. But like (laughs) the film negatives are in 8K. Amazing. Incredible. I had no idea. A film at 24 frames per second. And um, that's the standard, right? 24 frames per second. With digital, you get 1920 by 1080 resolution at 30 frames per second, which was often used in TV, but not in the you know feature film space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could film for a larger capacity of time with less downtime. So 40 minutes as opposed to like four minutes before you had to reset your reels and things, right? However, this could be problematic for the digital. Like if you're like wanting to use digital, but your frame rate was at 30 and everything that your all your your technology was running at 24 not super compatible right mm, right but wait there's more call but 1-800 more. call 1-800 sony panavision so here we go folks <laughs> this is this is like crazy we started like really looking into this and i'm i didn't know a lot of these things about attack of the clones and i'm sure there's people out there who's like what are you talking about that's common knowledge like listen i don't know these specifics but these are these are damn cool specifics and we want to share them because we think they're neat yeah, I was four when this movie came out. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it is it is it is interesting though to think that you know at the time, digital shoots or you know video cameras, what the kind of what they were called back then, really only used for television. And so when George Lucas is going out and saying, "Hey, my big blockbuster movie, Star Wars, I want to use TV cameras for it," basically. And everybody's like, "What are you talking about, dude? We got these amazing 8K resolution." film reels you can use like you are you are out of your mind like yeah if the if it ain't broke 
don't, don't fix, fix it. it right <laughs> but if we've learned anything from the best visionaries of our time it's that sometimes you do have to break the wheel a little bit right and in this case george is breaking the wheel because there were studies done actually by sony that sort of determined yes film does start at 8k but when you get to that third generation copy which is typically what you end up with it's almost only down to a 700p resolution so really the digital even though it's much lower um, is a better quality version of your movie and so we need at this point they need a camera and everything that can shoot at 24 a digital camera that can shoot at 24 frames per second so it works with all of their video editing software and all of their monitors that can only view things at 24 frames a second so it's difficult it's difficult at the time fred myers who's the chief engineer at uh, ilm he goes to the standards committee meeting and he wants to try to get all these different broadcasters and manufacturers to support the new standards and tech and really there's just no support behind it right everybody's like there's no time for that we can address it at the next meeting in like a couple months he's like we don't have a couple months so <laughs> We go to this amazing meeting uh, in 1996 between people from Lucasfilm and Sony Japan. And Rick McCollum pitches the 24 frame system. And at the time, Sony's like, well, we haven't really, we've thought about it. <laughs> and they don't really have the infrastructure for this. So here is Lucasfilm being like, listen, we're only, only going to work with the technology of the moment, but we want you to do this for us. Right. And what is the, what happens in this meeting? Okay, so Fred Myers, I'm quoting from archives, yeah. drew it all on the paper tablecloth. The head engineer stood up, he looked at it, he walked around the table a couple of times, then he sat back down and did not say a single word for 25 minutes. So for 25 minutes, everybody just sat there and he, as he looked at it, and then he raised his fist, slammed it down on the table, stood up and said, I can do it. I'll do it for you. Walked off. That was it. <laughs> this is the Sony guy saying that, right? One of the Sony. The yeah, the dudes. head engineer at Sony, based on Fred Myers's plan that he wrote out on the, the tablecloth. You know, he, oh, he talked about what exactly they needed, got the, you know, talking about the lenses and, and everything that they needed to make it happen. And the guy really thought about it. It was probably very <laughs> awkward. And then there was some sort of verbal agreement. It was happening. Amazing. Dro a total drop the mic moment in the history of Star Wars that we often don't talk enough about. I, I, does, do the people know about this? Like, I just feel I like know. the people should know about this, you know? <laughs> Cause I certainly didn't before this moment, but like, I would, I want them, you know, how they have like dr dramatized biopics of the making of certain movies. Oh. I need the dramatized biopic of making Attack of the Clones. Oh my God. It can be called the Digital Revolution, you know, whatever. Um, and I wanted, I want a fictionalized version of that, this scene playing out. George Lucas biopic when? Right. Oh, man, right. I would, I would really, love but that. Like, but really though and and george lucas says like this didn't just happen and it and it didn't happen um because a lot of like independent people put stuff together and he says it happened because we convinced a lot of people from the big companies to put up money and to advance the technology to make it happen that's not a, that's not a that's not an easy thing to do again especially when you have the status quo and you have people looking at george lucas going why is he making a star wars movie with broadcast tv equipment why is he doing that? That's that's ridiculous, right? And so here is George Lucas. They get a hundred million dollars from sixty-two companies across the industry. 
40 million from Sony for the camera, 20 million dollars from Panavision for the lens. Hollywood Hollywood's like, no, that's 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 silly. That is ridiculous, right? But regardless, they end up with six prototypes, no manuals, just the gear, and a note from Sony that says, We can't be held responsible for this. <laughs> <laughs> and like these cameras were numbered like serial number zero 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 one. Yeah. Zero 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 two. The most prototype you can get. <laughs> Which is crazy to think about because you're thinking, okay, so George Lucas really, really wanted to shoot on digital. He had to convince a lot of powerful people to be like, please put up a lot of money to make digital cameras. They give him back the cameras and he's like, they're like, okay, here's what you ordered. Here's what you requested. Six prototype cameras. If they don't work, Godspeed, good luck, because uh, that's not my business anymore. You know, yeah. you're the filmmaker. You actually have to make the film. So I think that quote, you know, that we, we can't be held responsible by this for this. Um, I think it comes from Wick McCallum uh, restating the delivery of the cameras, which is um, like. I just again, I want the fictionalized version of this. This is so dramatic. Yeah. And, you know, the funniest thing about all of this is even when they do shoot this film on digital, which, by the way, was not the first time it was Star Wars was shot on digital. They did some pickup scenes uh, with Sony cameras for The Phantom Menace. So I, I think one of the scenes I did was the uh, midichlorian scene uh, between mm -hmm. Anakin and, and Qui-Gon. And that was at traditional uh, 30 FPS. So um, not the 24 that they did for Attack of the Clones. So still a little bit of an uh, earlier conventional Sony digital camera. But the most interesting thing about this all is like, even though they are making this on digital, like many of the movie theaters in the United States can't even like show digital. Right. So in the end process, and we'll get to this later on, but like in the end process, they still have to find a way then to like take their digital movie and put it onto a film reel. And many of these theaters in the country, there's 32,000 theaters and like typically less, less than 1% of those, according to Rick McCollum, can actually reproduce that film accurately right and that that's kind of mind mind-boggling right because you have you have sound issues and you have picture quality issues right but i think part of going to digital is maybe to wipe some of those issues away and create a more consistent picture quality no matter where you're watching movies in the united states and so this was just an incredible time and i i want to go to actually a column from roger ebert and boy this was a trip reading this this is from uh may 14th 2002 so this is uh two days published two days before the united states premiere of attack of the clones uh originally roger ebert uh you know may he rest in peace he originally saw attack of the clones uh on film and originally he had thought there was like kind of a certain fuzziness to it um which you know they actually talk about that in the uh, prequel archives book that some of the issues with taking a digital movie and putting it back on film was a funniness and was a little bit of blurriness, right? So there's some, there's some difficulty there, but when he went to go see it, uh, later, uh, that week on digital, he felt it was much sharper and crisper and brighter and punchier than it was on film. And so what he says here is quote, this will come as melancholy news, I suppose, to the vast majority of fans destined to see the movie through a standard film projector. Although an accurate count is hard to come by, there are apparently about 20 screens in America showing episode two via digital projector and about 3000 showing it on film. Lucas is so eager to promote his vision of the digital future that he is willing to penalize his audience 
just to prove a point. (laughs) I love reading columns of the times. What a time reading this, right? It's just, it's just so interesting. Roger Ebert actually watched at uh, Chicago's McClurg Court Cinemas, which I don't know if you know where that is, Sarah, but that is where he- It does not exist anymore. Ah, okay. Um, However, it is not- terribly far from what is currently the amc river east 21 yeah there's your fact of chicago history at the same time um thank you roger ebert for bringing it back to chicago (laughs) um but yeah it's it's fascinating to think about how people were we talk about how this movie was made but then how people were seeing it is a totally different experience however it kind of worked at the end of the day I will disagree with Roger Ebert, though. He later says, yes, it's fun to see the surprise Yoda has up his sleeve. But in the scene itself, he turns from a substantial, detailed, realistic character into a bouncing blob of Yodaness, moving too quickly to be perceived in any detail. Okay, Flippy Flippy Yoda's great. That's all I got to say about that. Flippy Flippy Yoda <laughs> is king. And also, Roger Ebert, I wonder what you have to say about the Flash. You know, he moves at the speed of light, you know? He entered the speed force. Did, did, he did Yoda entered the speed force? Wait a second. Did Yoda enter the speed force in Attack of the Clones is my question. Put that in your fan favorite moment, Oscars. Do it. I dare you. All right. I dare All you right. next year to put Flippy, Flippy Flippy Yoda as your number one. But one final comment here on the on the column. He says, okay. the debate about digital projection is just beginning. My feeling is that movies shot on digital video look better projected on video and that movies shot on film look better projected on film. Uh, what I dislike about Lucas's approach is that he wants to change the entire world of film to suit his convenience because his movies are created largely on computers. It suits him to project them digitally. Again, you can kind of see back then again, like George Lucas in the seventies, he's like the sort of revolutionary filmmaker. He makes THX. He makes American graffiti, which is kind of about these kids summertime, a little rebellious. He makes star Wars. It's like super Buck Rogers serialized movie inspired by the buck rogers serials and it's this like out there movie with robots and a guy in a a dark costume breathing through a mask very like unconventional and i think even back then people might think you know george lucas is just some hippie from from san modesto and like here's roger ebert who's you know a renowned film critic who's kind of saying like the same thing in 2002 like george lucas is just this guy who's all into digital and wants to change the world for himself but you know again 20 years later we kind of see what George Lucas did didn't just affect himself, but it affected the rest of filming as we know it. Right. It, it yeah. had, had profound effects. Yeah. And I think that it's clear that film as a medium, uh, as a you know, physical property is still quite revered. Um, you know, there are specialized theaters that specifically will show like 70 millimeter prints of films or show a film on film that you don't otherwise see on film. And now most projectors, I believe are digital projectors. Mm -hmm. Um, So like the world has changed and has it changed for George? Did it change for George Lucas? Maybe, but if people are also making movies that are theoretically cheaper, they're not necessarily cheaper, but budgets are big, but like theoretically cheaper than that same film would have been on film. Like that's a benefit to everybody, no? Mm-hmm. Like the filmmakers, the people who are putting up the money. Um, but I guess the question is like, why does digital matter for George? Uh, the first movies, they just put up a camera and had a train come into a train station, and everybody was amazed. And that was sort of all technology. 
just look at the technology. But as it grew, it grew into more of an art form and much more sophisticated than that. And what we've been doing ever since then, whether we add sound or whether we add color or whether we use digital technology, is simply a way of broadening the canvas so that we have more colors to work with. As it started out, it was you know cave paintings, uh, just and very 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 beautiful and very significant. But as you get along, the the technology of using canvas of or uh, you know sculpting in different kinds of material um, suddenly it all advances to a point where it gets very sophisticated, uh, and you can tell much more interesting stories and you can express yourself more clearly. Um, and that's what's happening today, and that's why all artists are constantly pushing the technology of their medium to be able to widen the, the range that they can use their imagination. I think what's really key here is, and I quote him, the digital characters are what I needed to tell the Star Wars films so that I could have a story more like the one that I could think of in my head. So having this sort of digital revolution where it's cheaper to make these movies because he's filming them digitally and not on film, where he has the VFX that are capable of what he's thinking of in his head, ultimately allows him as an artur, as a filmmaker, as a creative, whatever label you want to put on him, better envision his desires, better envision his world. And I think that's pretty incredible because look at the worlds we have gotten since 2002, since 2000, you know, um, and the places we've been able to travel to in the realm of film because there's less of a limitation on where you can go. Mm -hmm. I also want to highlight that Rick McCollum says that the first time that George ever discussed with me the concept of a digital future for cinema was in 1989. He goes, I'm amazed at how precise that vision was about what he wanted to achieve. The idea was to make a digital pipeline, not just to have a camera that to shoot digital, but to do visual effects, to do post-production, the editing, the sound, the music, and then most importantly, make sure that an audience actually got to see that film protected digitally. That was the dream. And I get it. Like, that is a very boat rocky <laughs> idea, right? Right. Like, that is a, a huge shift. And I get why Roger Ebert, especially as someone who initially saw a digital movie printed on film at the theater, was like, I don't know. Uh, you know, somebody who has been. It's a bit fuzzy. It's and, a bit, you know. It, yeah. And as somebody who's been in the industry for decades at that point would be hesitant to adopt this sort of stuff. But nothing ever gets done if you don't have the people like George who are saying, no, 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 this is it. This is the future. This is where we need to go. It's mm -hmm. those sort of minds that push us forward. Otherwise, we get there really, really slowly. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you just <laughs> need that extra push. You know, it just takes yeah. a spark, uh, a spark to burn down the first order. Mm -hmm. Right. And in this case, the first order is, uh, you know, actually, we've, we've talked about Cop Copernicus on the podcast. Maybe, you know, George Lucas was the, the Copernicus of digital filmmaking. <laughs> you know, everybody was like, we no, just, we just the universe revolves around film. And he's like, no, oh it revolves gosh. around digital, talking, actually. Did we, did we just hop over to the heliocentric and the geocentric models of the universe? <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> wow, so. Wow, you just threw it into a completely other niche. Can we talk about Tico Brahe? <laughs> <laughs> no, the answer is no. Don't let me talk about Tico Brahe, Nicholas Copernicus. We're talking about digital film and we're talking about Attack of the Clones. So I think we should talk now about what made the Attack of the Clones production 
different than that of even The Phantom Menace, which had come out just three years prior. For the kind of films that George makes, the kind of films that we make, we are ostensibly in the digital arena from the first day that we actually start working. Uh, most people fail to realize this, but basically what happens is every single frame, every single shot in the movie has a digital effect. Pretty much every set has blue screen, even if it's just out a window or something. It's everywhere. Uh, I think I've been on one set where there hasn't been any blue screen. So for us to shoot and film and then scan it into a computer is a ridiculous process. Right now we can shoot on high def and 50 minutes after we shoot a 50 minute cassette, it's inside the computer. So I would say the biggest difference between these two films is on The Phantom Menace, you have a lot of storyboarding. On Attack of the Clones, uh, there are still elements possibly of storyboarding, but primarily you're working with pre-visualization. So the neat thing about that is like George Lucas is actually able to build computer models of these worlds that he wants to create and he can figure out the the kinetics of the filmmaking, the motion of the camera within these worlds. And once he builds those worlds out, uh, he can superimpose then all of the stand-in models and the physical sets and all of that and superimpose it on top of those digital worlds and make it all work together, right? And you think back to something like Return of the Jedi. I was watching an old video Maddox uh, reel uh, about how they created the Battle of Endor and they were doing what they called video Maddox back then. They kind of put it in quotes as if it was their own term that they were using. And you have the people at ILM moving little, uh, little models around on sticks and there's cardboard cutouts and there's map paintings in the background and it's just so choppy and it's so uh, DIY, right? And now here you have that same effect being built by a computer and being built by animators. And that's incredible. That's an incredible jump to go from cardboard cutouts to computer generated worlds. And that's why we're able to get things like Coruscant and why we're able to get things like Camino and the vastness within the Camino halls, you know, all this, just these environments that we never even could have dreamed of on attack or on a Phantom Menace because um, people kind of shit talk Phantom Menace too and just say, oh, it's all CGI. Like Phantom Menace was actually, I think, one of the movies that you like, it was like 90% practical effects because they were mostly using miniatures and stuff. Like it was, and, and like the pod racers on Tatooine were all handmade and everything, right? That big, the big dust storm that um, destroyed a lot of those things. And so I think it's really neat that, you know, George and the team get to do this filmmaking virtually and to have these animatics where they're using uh, editorial assistants like Matthew Wood to sort of get the vibe of the shot and of the scene and play it all out before you even get to set to shoot, you know, and when you get to set to shoot, you can actually have that digital world on a screen in front of Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor, and they can see what Coruscant looks like on a screen in front of them, and they can see where they are. So rather than some dude shouting through a megaphone, okay, this is on your left, this is on your right, this is in front of you, they're seeing it. They're seeing it. It's a, as Rick said, it's a bizarre cartoon that they're looking at. And it changes the way that the actors visualize the world and interact with it. Yeah, the key thing here is the storyboards, while they're so cool to look at and, and view the process of how each shot is going to look, they just don't show motion. 
there's no sense of how people are moving through the frame. There's you can draw arrows, you can draw some lines to, to show motion, but there's no physical actual motion. And I think that having the motion allowed or having the motion through the animatics allowed George Lucas to better understand how he was going to go in on the day and get what he needed to get in order to put that into his his puzzle of the shot. You know, what does he need from the actor in that specific moment? Mm hmm. So that it doesn't, it doesn't have to make it harder than it needs to be when you have to yeah. shoot with actors. Yeah. And you and can kind of take each incredible. piece of it. You can take each piece of it and move it around like a, like a building block, right? Oh, I want to move this piece here later on. Right. But whereas a film, it's a, like you said, it's a linear thing. It kind of, you, you take that reel of film and you film on that one, that one reel. And it's, it's very choppy to splice that up and try to edit it and move it around here. It's much easier. You can kind of just, oh, we need a. We need a wall over there. Let's let's build that wall for that shot. Boom. You just, you know, send it back to the animators. They put it in there. Your shot's fixed. Uh, and you can even do that in post, right? You don't have to go back and reshoot a scene with that new with that new uh, element of the of the environment. And so I think there too you you cut a lot of the costs of the film because one uh production times are much much shorter you know instead of spending four days on the coruscant chase scene they're spending one um you don't have to build as many of the practical elements of the set uh you're not working as much on the matte paintings in the background all those things that take so much time and can cause delays is just a little bit quicker and a little bit easier to do and you have some of the industry's best working on this you know they, they said that they're uh, doing 22 hour days which is kind of hard to think about uh <laughs> in these times i don't the best uh working environments probably not you know probably not definitely not you know george i think uh, at some point in the we were watching uh state of the art the pre-visualization of episode two which is a great feature at george was saying he always wants to push his guys basically to their limit to see if they can do it and once they do once they do it he then kind of sets the next limit and sees that they can push it even farther right and i think that you know definitely can lead to instances where you are overworking and obviously they were putting in a lot of hours and that's not the healthiest right um but when you look at the big picture though of just uh, george as a leader i think he was always again forward thinking and he wanted to push the boundaries of filmmaking he didn't want to do the conventional thing that the rest of hollywood was doing he wanted to go the extra mile and create those environments that we have never seen i think it's important to note that the pre-visualization animatics were better suited for George's style because he said he works more like a painter or more like a, a sculptor, as opposed to, he says, films can be very assembly line. You put piece next to the next piece, next to the next piece, and then you've created a movie, which you've kind of put it all together. But if you can capture the actors on a blue screen today, and then in two months from now, you can go ahead and then start to put in the digital characters next to the actors. And then you can put in the environments behind that. You put all the pieces together at different times. But with the three visualization process, you know how all the pieces are going to fit together. As opposed to, Brad, as you said, you know, if you're filming in a room, you got, you know, you did six takes, you got your shot great, you're on the editing floor. Oh my gosh, we need two lines of dialogue changed. There's no way to do this except to refilm the entire scene just based on how the cameras were set. 
Then you have to go rebuild that entire scene, call your actors back, do reshoots, and then go back again. So he's saying, you know, when you are piecing things together like he does, you're able to shift single elements independently of one another. And I think that was a big plus for him. As he said, oh, wait, let's let's add a little something here. Let's just subtract a little something here without having to call the actors back, without having to build entirely new sets. Yeah. And he said it was also like, I think you said like cooking in a way. It makes you think of the Among Us task on, uh, on, an, oh uh, my on, gosh. on the burger building. Yeah. When you go to the burger and you're like, oh, is it bun, burger, onion, bun? Or is it burger, burger, tomato, burger? Or is it onion, lettuce, burger, bun? You just never know. And for George Lucas, he can just make whatever the hell burger he wants. And that's amazing. Every time. Build the burger you want, George. Build your burger. BYOB. BYOB. <laughs> you also earlier mentioned that they would show, like, Ewan and Hayden, the little animatic in front of them so they would know, you know, which way the speeder was tilting, where yeah. they needed to be looking at. And you think about today, there was a direct line oh, yeah. from that to seeing the blue of hyperspace right around the actors in a sort of a void sort of setting where you have these LED panels and that sort of thing. And then you go towards, you know, people being in the cockpit and being able to actually see the ships flying past them. I don't know what movie that started in in the past four or five years, but there was mostly a, started like rogue one solo. Was that a rogue one solo sort of thing? Yeah. Um, I couldn't know. I didn't know if it was rogue one or solo or if it was Dunkirk, like <laughs> <laughs> maybe both. Um, but that sort of thing happened. And now you look at and what you can do in the volume today. And you think of like, not this, not necessarily the same sort of scene, but you think of Batman and all those glow light, like mm. the Batman 2022 all those scenes that are happening up by the bat signal all on the volume, that light, that setting they're on the ground floor. You know, they're not up high. They're on the ground floor, but you would have no idea as actors. Even that's the incredible thing because you're right. There is a direct line between attack of the clones, previs and the volume, right? They're both the same thing in concept, right? They're both trying to, build environments that the actors can exist in and see and that the directors and the producers can can change very easily and adjust and make adjustments and make production schedules much easier right it's the same thing like you said oh we forgot that one thing let's change the environment slightly without having to like redo the whole thing and throw it out right same thing with the volume oh crap we need to insert this extra piece of dialogue they can literally go back and adjust it to that exact moment, that exact shot on that day and get the environment exactly the same at the click of a button. The environments are changing around you, right? So Rob Brito, he's ahead of ILM. He says now visual effects are becoming real time. And so I think back then, you know, when you think of 20 years ago, you know, we have the volume now. 20 years ago, we had previs. 20 years before that, we didn't have previs, right? And so you kind of think of those 20 year increments that George said, you know, I, I bet George today would be like, why didn't we do the volume 20 years ago? That's, that's incredible. It's amazing. Right. Right. You know, we should have been, we should have been doing that all along. And it's just amazing to see just how, how far we've come. I think the volume is probably one of the greatest feats of, of filmmaking I've ever seen. It, it really is. I mean, the way you can combine a physical and the virtual and like this real time rendering or you can create any environment and like even solo did a little bit right they filmed the dolomites and 
they like put it on LED screens and you got all those natural lighting elements in solo. And I think that's, you know, regardless of what people think of the film, I think that was kind of one step closer to where we got to with the volume. And it's, it's funny to me because when you, uh, this, there's this one moment in the documentary where, uh, George says that you can't go sit on a mountain for three months to get the light you, you want, uh, but you can create it. Right. And that was back then. And now it's like, you can do that with the volume. You can get a 10 hour sunset if you want. Yeah. Just, you just gotta, you, you know, be, so it's like, you can be in the glowy hour all day. <laughs> right. So, and then this, again, this is 20 years ago. George is thinking of, of that same concept of like, oh, you can get a sunset whenever you want. You can get the weather elements of Camino whenever you want. We don't have to go out and film on location and wait for it to rain. You know, like they can do whatever they want. And that's just so incredible to see that direct line, as you said. And again, and I mean, we're really just completely killing our last segment here, which is the digital legacy here. But, but <laughs> again, like you think about that, we are at the baby. We are still at the infancy of all of this technology. If this is the infancy, where are we going? You know, 15 yeah. years ago, we couldn't imagine the iPhone that we have today. 15 years ago, we couldn't have imagined the volume. Where will we be in another 15 years, in another 20 years? I am, I want to know. I can't wait, you know? Like, I, I think there, I think the, the filmmaking and the way that evolves is, is, is incredible. And I'm ready to look back at this episode in 20 years and be like, wow, she was so silly. She couldn't even imagine the thing we have now, you know? <laughs> we have volume 15.0. <laughs> yeah, it's fully, it's fully 360, <laughs> you know? It's a, you're inside a globe uh, the floor but, is digital but even you know even between mando seasons one and two they increase the size of the volume right so like after season one they were like we're we're in this this is it this is the tech mm -hmm. and uh there's a commitment to that now and it's uh and we'll get more to it at the end when we talk about sort of the the legacy of of attack of the clones but yeah it's just incredible stuff i feel like we had to bring it up here though because previs is the blueprint you know yeah it's it, it is it is it yeah that's it that's it previs animatics are the blueprint it's on a, it's on a royal blue t-shirt too <laughs> it's like the get it blueprint oh i thought you were making fun of the uh the red millennium falcon shirt that everybody has and but this am, one's gonna be blue and it's gonna be the blue shirt I that am, everybody has so. i 100 percent am and especially <laughs> because it's like it is the blueprint and then it's gonna be about uh, yeah and on the back, it maybe can have a scene of like the very clunky <laughs> previous animatics. Don't steal our idea, guys. Oh, shit. We should probably cut that. <laughs> we'll make, we'll make so, them for celebration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with that, we should talk about some of our favorite elements, most exciting elements, and most revolutionary elements of Attack of the Clones. And oh, like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We have to start. We have to start with our guy, with our boy, with our my dude. first, my childhood boyfriend, Flippy, Flippy Yoda. I know I will not expand upon that statement. Flippy Flippy Yoda. <laughs> it is obvious that this contest cannot be decided by our knowledge of the Force, but by our skills with a lightsaber. Sarah, why is Flippy Flippy Yoda so revolutionary? Flippy Flippy Yoda is so revolutionary because have you looked at him? That king. I have. King. He's handsome. He flips around. 
Okay, let's talk about Flippy Flippy Yoda in all seriousness, though. George Lucas wanted Flippy Flippy Yoda for a while. This wasn't an immediate, oh, let's put CGI Yoda in Attack of the Clones just for fun. Because we can. Yes, it was like a because we can situation. <laughs> but the reason why it happens here and not Phantom Menace is because the technology had not advanced far enough to make it work at mm-hmm. the time of the Phantom Menace. You know, it wouldn't have worked then. So, of course, they did it now. And it's interesting when we're creating this digital character for something that was physical and was uh, a performance from Frank Oz, both vocally and physically with the puppet, into something that is just his vocal performance and then the digital performance by the animators because the animators become actors in a way in George's mind. How can we manipulate, you know, um, the mouth, the eyes? What sort of emotions is Yoda bringing across to the screen? Those are things that Frank Oz would have manipulated with his hand when he was using this puppet. So there's a whole different creation process that's going on. Of course, Frank Oz still lent his voice and still, um, you know, was, was happy to do the role. But it becomes a bit of a different beast when you are creating him in a completely different way. And, you know, a puppet can only do so much. You know, of course, there's a puppeteer hiding behind every puppet. But a digital character can go flippy flippy if he so desires. <laughs> and, you know, too, a little bit different from from Jar Jar, because, you know, Ahmed Best is wearing a large part of the costume with, you know, the extension above him uh, for, for Jar Jar's face. But really, yeah, like you said, this is a completely digital character. There's no stand in. And it's it's pretty incredible. Well, there was one reference stand-in, and he had some vampire tea. (laughs) You should watch the the behind-the-scenes documentaries because he's very cute. Amazing, because, (laughs) you know, Christopher Lee, no Suratu, you know? You know how it goes. So that was great to see. I love that. Um, But I think the the big thing that George wanted was, yeah, he wanted it to be reminiscent of the puppet. And he's like, if it's not going to be looking like the puppet, it's not going in the movie. Like it has, it has to look like the puppet. And um, one of the, I think the most interesting pieces of advice that Frank Oz gave to, uh, to Rob Coleman, who was one of the, um, the animators, he said that you have to make Yoda look like he's sore. Like, like, you know, some of the movements that he's going through, like really takes it out of him. Right. So, you know, if he's walking a couple paces, maybe that like little extra kind of hunch or mm-hmm. that little extra breath to make it look like it was a little bit exhausting for him to, you know, to get through there. Cause he's, he's old. He's pretty old in these movies. He's pretty old. You yeah. Know? And, and, he, and definitely he would get the senior discount at most, if yeah, not all places. Yeah. And you know, it, it was mentioned that like, you know, Frank Oz, when he did the puppet originally, like he would kind of like clamp his fingers when he would move Yoda to kind of make Yoda have that hunch of like, Oh God, I'm exhausted. I'm out of breath. Right. And so really adding all those little intricacies and looking at the old footage, uh, one of the coolest things I thought they did was they, uh, they put the CGI Yoda into the Empire Strikes Back at, uh, backgrounds and they like recorded some of the dialogue with the CGI character and George watched that and was like, this is this is great, you know, like and so one, I'm glad they didn't replace, you know, the puppet because I, I know they would never do that. But but it was cool to see in that context of like, you know, does it evoke the same emotions? And I think ultimately CGI Yoda, I'm glad they went back and got rid of that nightmare fuel puppet from phantom menace <laughs> you're so <laughs> mean to the phantom menace puppet. no it was so bad <laughs> it looks so bad it was so much different than the original trilogy and it just it just 
was not the vibe. But we should perhaps also speak to our bias. We essentially grew up with with digital Yoda. Yeah. So some people, I think, really identify with Puppet Yoda. Well, and no, for pu- me, to be clear, Puppet Yoda from The Phantom Menace, who is different I know, from... I know, I know. I know, but I'm saying that there Yoda. are... I think there are puppet purists and I think that's valid, you know, totally valid. Yeah. But having grown up with flippy flippy Yoda and again, flippy flippy Yoda being my first boyfriend. um, (laughs) No, I will not elaborate. Is he your first Um, and current boyfriend? Are you guys, are you guys keeping it off the, off the uh, interwebs, the New York post? Our relation ended a while ago, um, but it was amicable and everything's great. He's doing well. I'm doing well. We're thriving. Um, Love that. But like, there's something about the energy, essentially, of Flippy Flippy Yoda. The fact that he's old, you know, he's really, really old and he's doing all these flips. It really elevated sort of or expanded the idea of what the Jedi can do, who Yoda is and like what his role and responsibility and and abilities are within the Star Wars universe. And while that might have been a little bit foreign to some people when they first encountered it it's clearly become a staple of who the jedi are and how they operate i mean this also goes into the battle of genosis scene where we get all of the the jedi together battling in this particular way that we hadn't seen them before it's a completely different idea of the jedi you look at the animated shows you look back now at the higher public and you think about how this conception of the Jedi using digital characters and using this this set of digital effects, for lack of a better word, forgive me, affected, you know, <laughs> affected the Jedi's place and role within the Star Wars universe. Especially like a Jedi as coveted as Yoda, because you see him in the original trilogy and you know how important he is, right? And so fans have been sort of waiting for this moment of like, okay, like what is Yoda like at the height of at the height of his powers. And I don't think he's necessarily in the height in attack of the clones, but you know, height pre exhaustion of order 66, right? Like order 66 kind of trauma, (laughs) you know, he's, he's like, you know, 800 years old now, but order 66 ages him like another 800 years because of the loss, (laughs) (laughs) simply because of the loss. Yeah. I think, you know, the first time I watched that in the theater, I was just like, this is, this is silly, but this is great. And I love the way he flips around. He's like screaming and, you know, we get a little bit of that in, in the High Republic now, which is super great. I think, you know, High Republic says flippy flippy Yoda rights, which we agree. Thank we you. We respect the taste. Keep doing it, please. Um, I also think we should get shredded Yoda at some point because there was a, a visual effect at one of these in one of these featurettes that showed a shirtless Yoda, Kylo Ren style shredded. in that scene. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, Daniel Jose Older should be the one to give that to us. So just gonna yeah. manifest that but anyways yeah i want to look at it a little bit from the puppet purist point of view do we as audiences lose anything by having this performance from frank oz who you know is an iconic performer director legendary puppeteer do we lose anything from that performance when we go to digital because hmm. like i feel like the answer is like probably yeah but that's that's not to say that one option is bad and one option is good, but there is an opportunity cost, right? When you're switching the medium a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of obviously I think you'll lose a little bit of purity there, but and it was interesting too in Last Jedi to go back to the puppet with Frank yeah. Oz, right? Mm-hmm. 
but I think to your point about how George saw the animators as actors, I think that's a good a good mentality to have, right? Because mm. when you're building these characters, you're not just building, you know, you're trying not to build a lifeless CG character. That's not the goal, right? And uh, I know there was like a clip from Puppets to Pixels that was circulating, and I think Rob Coleman actually retweeted it and or quote tweeted it uh, recently, and how it was uh, Rob and George sitting down trying to figure out how to make Yoda look sadder. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, it seems to me like it was always a priority to really make that performance from Frank come through. Like the CG performance of Yoda, again, George's goal was make it look like the puppet. If it doesn't look like yeah. a puppet, if it doesn't move in the way a puppet moves, if the mouth doesn't move in the way that Frank would have made that puppet move, we got to redo it. We got to make it look different. And so I think, yes, even though you're losing the purity of like a physical model, I think keeping the integrity of Frank's performance in the digital format, I think is what really makes it work, at least for me. And I think why I love, I love prequels Yoda. I think it looks amazing and it's incredible that they were able to do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I definitely like, I think see both sides here. And of course, as Absolutely. I mentioned a little bit ago, like I definitely have the bias towards CGI Yoda. He's very handsome, but yeah, I mean, you're losing, you're losing Frank Oz being there on set and, and the, the nuances of his specific interpretation um, and how he's moving his hand in the puppet that manipulates every part of it. Um, and now we have little baby Grogu, who's a puppet, which is like the cutest damn puppet. He, but he's like, I've a, ever he's seen. a puppet. But he's like an animatic animatronic puppet. puppet. Yeah. Yeah. Animatronic. And like, which isn't. Anyway. Combining technology. the two. Yeah. I want to ask you one final question. A Yoda prediction, you could say. A Yoda um, prediction. When is Yoda showing back up on screen? What show is he going to be the first uh, to appear in? Oh, my God. Um, so we've got, we've got Kenobi. We've got Andor. We got the Acolyte. And Mandalorian. He could appear in Mandalorian if he talks a little Grogu, which, like, let me just tell you. Let me tell you. Well, I'm talking, like, in the live action. Live action. You know, if we're thinking, like, will they continue to use a puppet like they did in Last Jedi? Would they go Uh, back to CG, potentially? I think they'll use the puppet still because they're, you know, their commitment to Grogu as the puppet animatronic. I think it depends on what they need from uh, that Yoda in that scene. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, in The Last Jedi, when we get that scene, there's a specific callback to the original trilogy and the puppet and um, the sort of classic feeling of it all. Right. If we get him in the Acolyte, oh. pre-Phantom Menace, oh, then like, man. that's a completely different Yoda than we'd be getting if he comes back as Force Ghost in, like, theoretically, um, in Ahsoka Mandalorian, Shores, like, yeah. Right? He Mandalorian. should be in the Mandalorian with Grogu, is all I'm saying. That'd be cute. That'd, That'd be, be cute. super cute. That'd be <laughs> like super like, cute. Aw. Yeah. I, like, like, listen, regardless of what you think of the Mandalorian, like, that would be a, a moment of, oh, God, I'm cheering up thinking about it right now. Just imagine. Oh, my God. Like, Stop. We gotta, like, no, we gotta Grogu, put the emotions away. So good you are. <laughs> like, oh, my oh. God. I'm crying. I'm crying. Grogu gets me every time. Okay, continue. I'm gonna cry. Okay, anyway, while right. we're both crying, right. um, while we're both crying, you probably should talk about some okay. other digital characters, like yeah, our like, bestie, Dexter, Jetster. Yes, him and his and delicious eggs and bacon. All of the clones. So let's talk about them. 
Yeah, there were other digital there were other digital characters in this movie besides Yoda. We had Christopher Lee's digital double that they use for um, some of his flippy flippy dookus. Uh, Dexter Jexter, like you said, the Kaminoans. I mean, that was amazing. It all hits a little different too. I will say, you know, in the current climate of uh, synthetic Luke Skywalker in uh, Mando and and Book of Boba Fett, right? Because you think now where you know before some of the digital characters that they were creating were like alien creatures, like you know. Yoda, Dexter, Kevin Owens, and granted, like all the clones were CG, but they were under armor, right? And so it was a much more challenging task to try to build armor for, you know, hundreds of extras than it is to just, uh, you know, go big with it. And so now you have, you're kind of <laughs> dipping into different territory where the CG characters are human, uh, Tarkin, Leia, Luke, right? And so it's interesting that, uh, Back then, you're sort of at the precipice of this new technology, and now it's it's being used in an entirely different way. Uh, almost in some cases, replacing human performances by real actors. Um, but even like actors do performances for aliens as well. Like we see Andy Serkis is like really great at that stuff, right? Like Planet of the Apes, Gollum, Snoke, right? So there's still digital there's still digital performances, and even like somebody like Luke still has a, a, a physical stand-in. Um, but the ultimate character is a CG character in many ways. So it's it's interesting how it continues to change and evolve. And I wonder where they're going to sort of strike the happy medium. But um, anyways, this is like a different tangent. I just want to say it's interesting how like the whole digital character sort of started in this in this spot for Star Wars. Yeah. And I mean, pre-Dexter Jester and all of these characters, we also get Jar Jar, who continues right. into this movie which is another one of these early sort of characters that are, that are like this. And Watto um, too, you know, who's in yeah, Attack of Waddle the Clones. All happening at the same time that Gollum is. And then, and on these parallel trajectories, you have these kind of people who are moving forward with digital characters based on performances too. So at the same time, we're getting Dexter Jetster, who's completely digital with a voice performance uh, and had like a reference couple of shots with a human actor. Love John Noel walking in with the... <laughs> With the ball and the, the, With head, the ball, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then at the same time, you're getting Gollum, you're getting um, motion capture, and for for these digital characters, which ultimately propels us into for performance capture, which is what we get for Planet of the Apes, which is now what happened for Tarkin, right? And like Maz Kanata and Snoke, and you know, all these things yeah. are happening in parallel and are ultimately coming together and crossing over in in ways where this technology is able to help everybody um which i think is all really really cool uh but let's talk a little bit about dexter jester oh because one of the first things we see uh about george kind of deciding the look is not him looking at a computer or him really you know drawing it physically like him drawing it or somebody else drawing it he is kind of making a decision at the modeling stage so there are these physical models of various faces and looks and designs that the um artists have created for him and he kind of settles on these two that ultimately become dexter jetster and then they scan that model in to be able to then create the digital character so it's interesting how the physical space and the digital space are working together in tandem in order to complete this digital project which is also why you know, they filmed all these reference shots. So you you said that the actress who was who played Tan Wee, 
you know, had the helmet on her head with the like little <laughs> cardboard cutout of Tanwi's neck and head. So they, they should sell one of those line. at Celebration, by the way, this year, this year, next month, 20th anniversary, like buy your Kaminoan helmet, helmet head. Yeah. They film these reference shots with the actors who are voicing these characters to then have an understanding of where the eyelines will be, how they're going to move and how the scene is going to play out. So ultimately, everybody has to work in tandem and everybody has to have an understanding of what they're looking at in order to give their best performance and to order in order to, you know, then create at their best in post-production. And as much as like George Lucas is building out the Star Wars galaxy with these new characters, he's also building it out with locations. Right. Again, mm-hmm. we get Camino, we get Coruscant and it's full glory. We get Geonosis. Right. I mean, you look at something like Coruscant and the Phantom Menace, we only see kind of like little snippets of it. And I think in some ways, like, you know, the Coruscant chase sequence with Zam Wessel is one amazing and badass, but also it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a, a show off moment for ILM to be like, look at the environment we created you know like yeah the hundreds of speeders that are, are in this environment and the buildings and the movement of the character through these uh camera through these spaces i mean that's pretty impressive it's a, a lot of shots are happening in this film that haven't typically been done in action sequences uh, even up until the battle of geonosis same thing like with the sort of steady cam uh in a cg digital space i mean that's not something that was really ever done before and here Lucas is using some of these camera techniques in these digital spaces. I mean, it's impressive. And ultimately what makes these digital spaces successful is the sound landscape around them. And you can yeah. imagine there, there is a shot in the films are not released. They escape documentary um, that shows the sound editor who's working on specifically the Geonosis arena scene lasers, just all the gunshots. And there's like 50 or 60 tracks like on the same plane for her that she's trying to just like, pew, 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 pew. I can't imagine. (laughs) Such meticulous work, right? Like sound editing is so vital. Sound mixing is so vital to making these worlds feel real. And all of the creators, you know, we think about Matthew Wood and Ben Burnt, very, very key in this specific field of things. And while they aren't the cameras, you know, while they aren't the actors, their work is so vital. And um, I could get up on my sound editing and sound mixing are two different things and they should still have the two separate Oscar categories for them. Soapbox. But I think by just saying the title of that, <laughs> the Academy won't even televise it. them. I think they're I think <laughs> it's a lost cause. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, like you talk uh, about the sound editing and they're putting everything yeah. together and in the mixing and then you're doing the levels and making sure that everything looks perfect and feels perfect and feels convincing. And there's no way that the chase, the droid factory, the battle of Geonosis would have been convincing if all of these pieces didn't come together like, you know, a perfect jigsaw puzzle. The animatic process and the term of making the movie got to be very sophisticated. And one of the best examples is the Droid Factory because when we got the videomatics for that, they were really great looking. And because it's a very intense action sequence with giant machines and things, when you see it in blue screen, it's pretty boring and silly. You don't know what's going on. But once you get those giant stamping machines and stuff cut in there, it's very powerful. 
And so in that particular case, the videomatic department made a huge difference in our ability to visualize and, and follow the drama of the whole sequence. The fullest display of that sound editing and mixing, you know, in tandem with the visual effects really does happen in those those final scenes on Geonosis, like with the droid factory and with the battle of Geonosis, right? Um, the droid factory is impressive. You know, watching some of the uh, making of that sequence and understanding that this is really one of the most sophisticated sequences they've ever done with, you know, all these three 3D models that they're building on top of the stand-in actors and having Natalie and Hayden, um, which I think they said they shot this in like very little time, pretty much like a couple of days, maybe. Four and a half hours. Okay. They finished yeah. by lunch. Four yeah, and a half hours, right. The blue screen stage and the conveyor belt sequences. Four and a right. half hours. So imagine trying to shoot that with a fully practical set how long a shoot like this would take right and so it's still such a, a thrilling sequence and it's a good one and i know a lot of people are like what is going on with 3po and this is it's, ridiculous oh, and this is outlandish right this is what a star wars movie should be it's that it's silly. silly it's great it's so much fun i love watching it i, I always loved when uh you know anakin uh gets his arm cut and uh you know he's like oh Obi-Wan's gonna kill me. You know, he broke another lightsaber. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. And uh, R2 rescuing Padme. It's such a good moment. There's so many good moments uh, layered in there. But the Battle of Ge Geonosis, I think, is... The thing about the Droid Factory, though, is that the whole sequence came about, was conceived and made happen about eight or nine months into editing. Wow. Like, they were done. They were like, we're working on post-production. And then they were like, wait, we could do this. We could, we could do more with this. And then that's when they filmed it in four and a half hours. And they kind of just did whatever on this conveyor belt. They were like, okay, we're just, you can jump around however you like. And then they created the digital environment around that. Yeah. Mad, mad, amazing. Yeah. And, and even having like, yes, it is a blue screen environment that Natalie Portman is running around in. It's a void of some sort, but still she, she understands like where she needs to be and where she needs to go. And I think that's the most important thing uh, for the mm -hmm. actor is to really get the feel for the environment and some of those previs elements help natalie to know oh this is what it's going to look like yeah and um also like props to eric Tiemens and ryan church for a lot of the art that they did for that sequence i know that you know george and everybody was saying that um their artwork for those scenes were were so important to really set the mood and everything for those sequences and i think that really shows a great collaboration um, between the art department and the visual effects team to say like you know one is not necessarily separate from the other uh, in fact the art department really does influence still the visual effects the clone war basically we bypassed storyboards altogether and went straight into animatics it was a huge sequence in the movie it has literally thousands of characters droids clones troops ships basically we got a page that said and all hell breaks loose an incredibly complex dense scene to do but the battle of geonosis i think this is sort of the coveted event of this whole movie i think we're really back in 2002 you're like wow this is this is impressive right and you'll have all these cg clones the long-awaited clone war that we've only ever had alluded to we're on sort of the the frontier of the clone war series uh a couple years we're gonna get the micro series shortly after this movie but you know the full scale clone war series Dave filoni series uh, in another six years and so i think the most impressive thing about this whole battle is it even looking at the animatics of this they look incredible it's like it's like what you would have gotten in a republic commando like the video game right these look mm -hmm. like 
video game quality cutscenes. The whole thing is incredible. And when it really comes together and you see you're on the ground with the clone troopers and the battle droids, and there's just a pretty long sequence where you're not even with the main characters, and it's just like a showcase of of this battle. And I love I always love the shot where it's like the dust storm, the sandstorm coming up, and you only see sort of the lasers going back and forth, like the blue and mm-hmm. the red. That is always just again, it's a it's a 20 year old movie, but it's still kind of keeps me in awe every time of like, yeah, this is why I love Star Wars. Like little moments like that where you're just the the effects are on full display and you're kind of just uh, wowed and you're transported. What do you what do you think of the Battle of Geonosis and just how it kind of stands up against the rest of Star Wars battles that we've that we've gotten, you know, present and past? Very iconic. Very foundational for me. The kiss into the arena. Oh yeah. The reek, the Nexu, the Acklay all digital characters i may add yeah digital creatures very important very the nexus teeth very scary but i think like the way that that scene came together was epic for lack of a better word there are so many moving pieces in that scene that need to come together perfectly in order for it to have the right pacing the right comedic timing the right action and and pace and I agree with you. You really are transported in that scene and you can feel the scope and the scale of it all happening. Um, and yeah, this is where, where, again, where sound mixing and sound editing become like highly, highly important because you really need to feel the action and feel the drama here. So this is a scene that I don't think, I mean, we got like it's precursor uh, in, in digital sense in terms of the battle of Naboo and the, the Gungans and that whole sort of sequence. But then it gets elevated in terms of like the amount of lasers and things that are happening on the screen in a tight frame. Feels very Rogue One-ish before Rogue One, you know? Yeah. Sort of that on the ground vibe, war movie, being down in the trenches, but you really do get that feel. Um, and again, I think that is largely due to the fact that you can get those shots early and know exactly what type of, of scene you want to, uh, to execute. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about some of our favorite elements uh, of the film and also like quick shout out to the asteroid field chase sequence, by the way, that was also something that we haven't addressed yet, but you know, a, a dog fight <laughs> through all these asteroids, a seismic charge, the seismic charge. Oh, so good. Again, like the environments the in this movie are incredible, regardless of what you say about the prequels, the scope of it all, like, living in these just vast environments you just couldn't get that in the original trilogy to an extent and i think it's so key to george's imagination and all of these ideas that he's had bottled up for so long right he he put the clone wars in as a reference in a new hope because eventually he wanted to show the clone wars and that was a lot of the impetus for him to actually do the prequel trilogy is because he wanted to show the clone wars he wanted that to happen gets uh it's an inspiration as we bring star wars into the current day for uh, new filmmakers to tell the stories that they want to tell and really nothing's off the table it's like yeah you want to mm-hmm. create you want to create that go for it right and ilm is such a pioneer of that you know then and now they've always been trendsetters in the in the visual effects industry i think we're getting to that point where if you can dream it, you can achieve it. And ILM has never been one to uh, to say, you know, it can't be done. 
right? And they always try. And I think that is completely admirable. Mm-hmm. And ILM works on many other films outside of Star Wars, right? And so does Skywalker yeah. Sound. So they're leaders for sure. Yeah. It's it's incredible. But what do you, what do you feel like Attack of the Clones' digital legacy has been, you know, in, in modern Hollywood and modern filmmaking? We've really talked about it a lot through this episode. The fact that the volume exists and is this kind of dominating force in VFX in cinema, not just Star Wars, but beyond. And of course, they're not the only player in the game, but uh, the technology that they have is really key and important to the future of cinema. I also, you know, really don't think we'd be here today if it weren't for the pushing of George Lucas and the tenacity and his kind of like go get it attitude about digital. If he hadn't gotten that movie in 2002, we probably wouldn't be here today where we are. Also, Slumdog Millionaire was the first film that was primarily shot on digital to win the cinematography Oscar, and that was in 2008. And in the following year, Avatar was the first nominee and winner to be shot entirely on digital. So within the span of less than 10 years, six years and then seven years, we have people um, being regarded by their peers as the best in their craft that year. And I think that is a quick progression. I mean, just think about where we went from Attack of the Clones to Avatar within the span of seven years. That's a huge jump in VFX and digital filmmaking. uh, And both of them are really, you know, revolutionary in their own right. And it's kind of amazing to see where we were then, again, 2009, still over 10 years ago, um, and where we are now. So. It is so clear that this movie and that this technology happening when it did has had ripple effects that we probably haven't even talked about or can't even imagine um, because because we don't we don't work on the ins and outs of the film industry, but um, there's a lot that we can see in that that we've talked about here. So, yeah. And internally with Lucasfilm, I think George set a precedent to never think small and to always think big. And regardless of what the rest of Hollywood is doing, mm-hmm. go to the beat of your own drum and produce the the movie or the TV show that you want to produce, right? So again, we can always argue all day long about the, the plots of Star Wars and the story-making decisions, and it's totally valid. But regardless of how I feel about any sort of Star Wars content, I I always admire the visual effects. I always admire the sound mixing and the sound editing. I always admire the cinematography of it all. One thing I do want to to connect to from the prequels to modern day Star Wars is obviously Ewan McGregor is coming back as Kenobi. Ah, and Ewan has gotten to work in the volume, and that is pretty cool and he was actually talking with pedro pascal and uh it was a variety actor on actor uh interview thing and uh it's just i don't know i'm having such an amazing time down there with that incredible technology and the volume and the having done loads of it in the first when i did the first three films in the late 90s and into the 2000s by the time we did episode two and three we were literally 90 percent of the scenes were just on green sets with green floors green walls or a blue set with blue sides and blue walls, and to, we're doing stuff on there that you just that to the eye is like like you're, you're transported. And I, I, it, it's it's unbelievable to me 
to think that it'd be such a different experience, but with the same character yeah. that uh, that you were doing before and then coming in and doing it with all this new technology. It reminds me of old Hollywood. It's like the beginning of Hollywood. I know we've, it's almost like a foot, you know, when you, you imagine Hollywood yeah. when they had three-sided sets all in a row and a bunch of guys with the wind-up cameras and you would just go from one stage, if you like, to the other, one background to the other. Well, we're doing sort of the same thing, except it's just the background changes instead of the stage yeah. thing, you know? I mean, I can't even imagine what that must feel like for him. And I cannot wait for Disney Gallery, Obi-Wan Kenobi, to see, like, I just want to see, like, his first reaction, like, walking on set. I want to see, like, I want to see them, like, type in the codes on the computer and then, like, like, freaking like, Tatooine, like, pops up and he's just like, what the hell? He's like, what's going on? This is this is this is crazy, you know. That I hope we get like him talking about that, him and Hayden talking about that at celebration or in this behind yeah. the scenes gallery content because I think that would be super super rewarding for fans to see and also just to to witness in the sense to like look how far we've come both as like actors and people but also in the technology. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing and I cannot wait to see it in the Kenobi show. And one final note too on on George and and digital cinema. Uh, recently, him and uh, Kathleen Kennedy at the thirty third annual Producers Guild Awards, uh, they were presented with the Milestone Award uh, by Steven Spielberg, and and so the Milestone Award is sort of this. Uh, it's like one of the most prestigious honors. Um, it recognizes individuals or teams who've made historic contributions to the entertainment industry. And uh, during George's speech, speech, he says. He said, quote, the thing I'm most proud of is digital cinema. Where's Steven? Some people still don't believe it. And uh, the camera cut over to Steven Spielberg, who is like pretending to uh, crank a film camera. And so, you know, as we as we talk about Lucas being the first to film an entire film on digital back in 2002. And, you know, that's the thing he's most proud of today. And this is again, this is like a week ago or two weeks ago that that he gave the speech. I think it holds a lot of uh, value in his heart for the contribution that he felt he made to the film industry. And no matter what anybody said about the prequels, I think it's, it's promising to hear him walk away from those movies and say like, you know, that's the thing I'm most proud of is like digital cinema. Um, and not just those movies, but every movie ha he's done that has been, you know, a mm -hmm. part of that scene and a part of that, that digital revolution. Um, again, George Lucas is a, is a mind of tomorrow and uh, Kathleen Kennedy being there mm. much along the way and shepherding in this new digital era of star Wars, you know, with the sequel trilogy and with the volume and, uh, carrying that spirit that she learned under George's guidance, uh, not only as a, as a coworker, but as a friend and, uh, being the next George in some ways and trying to figure out ways that Lucasfilm can, can revolutionize their filmmaking still, you know, there's, there's always a boundary that can be pushed. And I think that's, that's really the, the essence of, a. Uh, of ILM and, and George. I don't think I have anything to add to that. I, I really just think that, uh, yeah, digital revolution is the right term to go with. Technology is used to tell a story, and that's the whole point. It's really the, the, the filmmaker and the storyteller and how well they're able to tell the story that counts in the end. The, the techniques they use are really a, a byproduct of that. So I want to wrap up here uh, with a couple of quotes from, from Rick and, and George. And I think these, you know, we, we started with a George quote about how he felt digital should have happened 20 years ago. And so Rick says, 
you have to be pretty brain dead to be involved in a film at this time and not realize that we are going through a very serious evolutionary step. Digital technology really gets down to one simple fact. A writer can write anything he wants to now. A director is only limited by his imagination. A producer can't say no anymore because now there is a way to solve each production challenge and to do it in a cost-efficient, fiscally responsible way. It doesn't mean that by using the technology that the film is going to be any better. That's still about talent. And the next quote, quote from George says, A film has been around 100 years and no matter what you do, you're always going to run celluloid through a bunch of gears. It's gotten more sophisticated over the years, but it'll never get any better than it is right now. With digital, we're off the very with digital, we're at the very bottom of the medium. This is as bad as it's ever going to be. This is like 1895. In 25, 30 years, it's going to be amazing. It's like we're the wild fanatics for wanting to change things when this is the biggest leap forward for the business since the advent of sound films. I will never make a film with film again. Those are two pretty incredible quotes. What do you make of those? End scene. <laughs> I mean, what, what is there to say? What is there to say? I think that that final quote really speaks for itself. And we've hit on it. Like, this is the worst it's ever going to be. And we've seen how much we've, far we've come in 20 years. Where are we going to be in the next 20? Right. In 100. Yeah. And to maybe apply that thinking to today, the volume is the worst place we're ever going to be. Okay. So what? what Progress at, is crazy. If we're at the low, then what is the high in 25 years, right? And, exactly. And, exactly. And, and Rick's still saying, you know, it's about talent at the end of the day. I think that's important because you can have flashy mm -hmm. effects. You can have flashy digital visual effects. Sure. But really, you still need talent. You need people with ambition, with imagination. You need good writing because the rest of it sort of falls apart with the whole digital charade if, if, if the core sure. and the heart of it doesn't beat correctly. Mm -hmm. And to have good storytellers along with all of these tools is a beautiful thing. So damn, Sarah, we, we've come to the end of our discussion here. I feel like all giddy and warm and fuzzy inside talking about digital, talking about how important this movie was. And I think this is like really the best place to start with Attack of the Clones, April, because talking about its importance for filmmaking, I think, is just really setting the stage for like the month. Like this movie yeah. means a lot to us and many others and many professionals. And we are not here to poke fun at it we're not here to talk about its flaws we're here to champion it and celebrate it because hell it's a 20th anniversary we've made it the prequel kids are here to stay let's go padme merchandise please glares glares straight into camera <laughs> um uh yeah no i mean i think this is also the best place to start because now we can just talk about all the elements of it that are great and we've already talked about some of the reasons why. So yeah. uh, I, I hope that everybody will continue to stick around with us on our Attack of the Clones April. As we mentioned up top, we have some exciting surprises down the road this month. And the, the party doesn't stop when April ends because I, I have no doubt that we're getting more at Celebration. Any society starts that way. Any society begins by realizing that together, by helping each other, you can survive better than if you fight each other and compete with each other. If I got a job, I would help somebody else get a job. If somebody got more successful than me, it was partly my success. I wasn't, my success wasn't based on how I could push down everybody that was around me. My success was based on how much I could push everybody up. And eventually they, their success was the same way. And in the process, they pushed me up and I pushed them up. And we kept doing that. And we still do that. And even though we all have, in essence, competing companies, 
we see it as if everybody succeeds, or my friend succeeds, then everybody succeeds. So that, that, and that's the key to it, is to have everybody succeed, not to gloat over somebody else's failure. One of the basic motifs of fairy tales is that you find the poor and fortunate along the side of the road, and when they beg for help, if you give it to them, you end up succeeding. If you don't give it to them, you end up being turned into a frog or something. So it's something that's been around for thousands of years, a concept that's been around for thousands of years. And it is even more necessary today when people are much more uh, into their own aggrandizement. And with that being said, for anybody out there listening, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. So all of our future episodes for Attack of the Clones April drop right into your podcast feed. You can find Sarah and I on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Goodreads. And Sarah is over at Sarah's Puzzled Pages on Instagram. And please leave us a rating if you would uh, once you're done listening to this episode and let us know how we did. And if you enjoyed our coverage of Attack of the Clones thus far. Yeah. And if you're going to leave us a review, let us know your favorite part of Attack of the Clones in the review, just for funsies. And we are so thankful for our patrons, Amy, Anna, Brian, Carol, Cheryl, Clay, Danny, Deborah, Donnie, Elegy, Huang, Jen, Knights of Ren, Levi, Leanne, Lindsay, Lucy, Neil, Rob, Saber Bouquet, Skytalkers, Travis, T, and our newest patrons, Davis and Randy. Thank you all so much for joining us on the Patreon. And if you want to join these awesome folks, our tiers start at just a dollar and you get extra episodes and we have a Discord community. We would love to chat with you and we are so, so grateful for your support. We also, at our $5 tier, have our Buy the Book novelization series where we have talked about the Attack the Clones novelization. So if you want even more Attack the Clones capital C content, it's over on our <laughs> Patreon page. Look, I made you some content. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that begun Attack of the Clones April has. Oh, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. So until next time, folks, may the force be with you always. Bye!